Pastor and author Bill Holt said, discipleship isn't just one of the things the church does. It is what the church does. The truth is, uh, although the fellowship that you can get at church can be great, people don't need the church to have fellowship with other people. Uh, although the quality of the Sunday morning experience at church can be great, people don't need the church to be entertained. And although there are events at churches that can be wonderful, the truth is people don't need the church for great events. The fact is, as good as all of that may be at some churches, all of that can be had in the world as good or better than it can ever be had in the church. At the end of the day, there's only one thing the church can offer people that cannot be found anywhere else. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the one commodity that we have that no one else has. The one distinction that sets us apart from everyone else. That's why Jesus didn't say, go therefore and create safe, comfortable spaces for all the nations. Right? He didn't say, go therefore and entertain all the nations. He didn't say, go therefore and put on great events for all the nations. No, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Because the only thing we have to offer people that cannot be had anywhere else is the gospel. Which means making disciples is our only job. And it's not only profoundly important that we understand that, but it is equally important that we understand what the making of a disciple actually looks like. Because listen, for a long time uh, in the modern era of the church, much of the church has mistaken discipleship for evangelism, as if those two things are one and the same, but they're not. Of course, uh, you can't have discipleship without evangelism obviously, but again, Jesus didn't say, go therefore and make converts of all nations. No, he said, make disciples of all nations, which is one of the reasons we don't see the church in the New Testament treating evangelism the way we typically do in our churches today, where we learn new programs or methods of presenting the gospel, and then we go out and use those methods or evangelism programs to try and lead people to Christ. Uh, which, by the way, isn't necessarily wrong, but it would probably be completely unnecessary if disciples lived today the way they did back then. Because the disciples' uh, lives in the first century, listen, they were so starkly in contrast with popular culture that they didn't have to go looking for converts. They simply lived like Jesus, which was a radical departure from the way anyone else was living at the time. And as a result, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved, Acts 2.47. Because the people who had grown weary of this world and what it had to offer them saw these disciples of Jesus who were empty of self and yet full of joy while living such radically different lives than what they could find anywhere else in the world, and it attracted people to the gospel en masse. And so they just kept doing it. 
They just kept planting churches, and everywhere they planted a church, the disciples in that new church acted like Jesus, and the result was more and more and more people being attracted to it, and it spread like wildfire. Again, not just evangelism, but true discipleship, which, of course, is what Jesus modeled for us in his own life, where he didn't just call people to faith in him, to conversion, but he called people to follow him, which is discipleship, the ongoing, lifelong process of following Jesus day by day, which is a radical and a radically different way to live your life than you can find anywhere else. And so you understand uh, disciples are not just believers. They're followers, right? Jesus didn't just say to his disciples, come believe in me, but over and over and over again, he said, come follow me. In other words, come be my disciples and then after learning how to be disciples he called them to go and make disciples and hence the church was born and so it's all about listen it's all about making disciples it always has been and as long as we're on this earth it always will be and so look the most effective way you will ever make disciples of Jesus Christ is simply by being one Right? You can tell people what you believe in all day long, and you should. But until they see you living it out in your own life, they won't care what you believe in. That's why only disciples can make disciples. And the good news is, that's our only job. You know, I can, I can almost picture Jesus looking down on his church from heaven with everything we try to do and be for this world, things he never called us to do or be. And I can almost picture him saying, you had one job, right? Stop trying to do everything you were never meant to do and just go make disciples. That's your only job. Which means, of course, the big question for every disciple of Christ today is, are you making disciples of Christ? Because if you're not, then you're not serving Christ. And listen, the remedy is not a new evangelism program. It's not you having to try and become something you're not, which is a big part of the problem with Christians today not making disciples because we think making disciples means doing something awkward or unnatural, so we avoid it. But that's not what it is at all. Yes, making disciples requires a lot of courage and a lot of commitment because you have to live in such a way that people will very naturally either gravitate toward you or they'll run away from you as fast as they can. But it's not about some kind of awkward or unnatural presentation to a stranger. It's about living your life in such a radically Christ-like way that when people who are around you, people you're in relationship with, come and ask you why you are the way you are, which they will. Then you simply tell them the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. It's as simple as that. And it's actually a very natural part of living a Christ-like life because it's nothing more than an extension of who you already are as a follower of Christ. And then when people respond favorably to that gospel, when you tell them about Jesus, then discipleship continues. But listen, that's not where it begins, right? The making of, dis of a disciple begins the moment you begin living like Jesus in front of other people. Think about it. Jesus was discipling those 12 men who followed him 
long before they ever even fully understood who he was, long before he even asked them if they knew who he was, and certainly before they put all their faith and trust in him. And it's the same way with you and me today. If we want to make disciples of Christ, then we have to model the life of Christ in front of them first, as we'll see in our story today as we continue working our way through 1 Samuel, where David, who's a forerunner and foreshadowing of the Christ, even as he's being hunted by King Saul, David begins making disciples, as we'll see, among the most unlikely people, and yet they ultimately go on to become leaders in the kingdom of Israel as they follow David and, and this life that he models for them long before they ever fully understood what it was they were even following. So let's pick the story up where we left off last time and see what we can learn from David about making disciples. First Samuel chapter 22, we'll begin with the first two verses. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. <clears throat> so if you were here last week or watching online, then you know that David has been running for his life from King Saul, who's actively pursuing David, bent on killing him in order to prevent David from becoming king. Even though Saul knows good and well that God has chosen and anointed David for that very purpose. And up to this point, David has been alone, other than a brief stop in Nob, the city where the priests and their families lived, in order to get some provisions for himself. And so after lying to Ahimelech the priest, saying that he's on this uh, clandestine mission for the king and that he needs food and a weapon, David is given some bread and a sword, which we'll come back to. And then he moves on with haste as Saul is hot on his trail, which brings us up to speed on the story today as David departs from Nob and escapes to the cave of Adullam. All right, Adullam was in Judah, halfway, about halfway between Gath and uh, Bethlehem, and it was a Canaanite city in the time of the patriarchs, which you'll find back in Genesis 38.1. But later it was captured by Joshua during the conquest through Canaan. And it was, known, uh, it was known for this giant hill that was both fortified and full of deep caves, which provided a natural shelter. In fact, the name Adullam in the ancient Hebrew literally means refuge. And not only did David's family follow him there, which we're going to talk about next, but also hundreds of people who are in distress, and everyone who is in debt, and everyone who is bitter in soul gathered to him. These were the outcasts and malcontents who lived on the ragged edge of society that were flocking to David, a fugitive himself, in the harsh frontier lands of Israel. And out of that raw, unrefined, and unwanted element of society, David discipled and trained one of the most formidable fighting armies this world has ever known. A band of brothers who became known as David's mighty men who would do anything for him, according to 2 Samuel 23. And if you consider David's plight, a man disgraced by the king and in imminent danger, right? he, he couldn't go to his house, he couldn't go to his wife, he couldn't go to the palace, he couldn't go to his family, he couldn't go to Samuel, he couldn't go to Jonathan. The only place there was to go for David was a cave to hide like an animal with one sword and a few loaves of bread. This is a man who can barely 
provide for himself at this point, let alone hundreds of needy people. And yet here they are flocking to David in droves because they recognized that what David had to offer them was infinitely better than what this world had to offer them. And because David accepted people no one else would, he was able to disciple them in ways no one else could. It's the first step in learning to make disciples. You have to be willing to accept the people God sends to you, whether they fit into your preferred demographic or not. Right? I'm certain David would much rather have had hundreds of well-fed, well-trained, well-armed warriors with really positive attitudes. But that's not who he got. No, instead God sent him the rejects of society, the anxiety-laden, financially irresponsible, discontented, ill-equipped, and untrained outcasts with a terrible outlook on life. Gee, thanks God. But David accepted them. And because he was willing to do life with these people who were nothing like him, because he accepted them as they were, they paid very close attention to this man that Samuel described as a man after God's own heart, a man who modeled for them what life looks like when you follow God, even through all of his own mistakes. And boy, he made some mistakes. And the results... And it couldn't have been more dramatic, more profound as they were ultimately transformed into the leaders of the kingdom. All because David was willing to look past their rough exterior, their rotten attitudes and their lack of resources and see the potential that God put inside of them. Listen, if you want to be a disciple who makes disciples, then you have to be willing to accept the people God sends to you. The people who are nothing like you. The people who don't have what you have or know what you know or act like you act or think like you think or vote like you vote or live like you live. They may be rough, unrefined, ill-equipped and untrained in how good Christians are supposed to act, whatever that means. But listen, as long as you're looking for the perfect disciple, you'll never make one. And yet I promise you, the moment you open your heart and your mind to the possibility of discipling whoever God happens to send your way, you will never have to go knocking on doors to try out the new evangelism program in your church ever again. Because God will just keep sending people to you until you can't handle anymore. He sent David 400 of them. You see, the problem is we've tried to make discipleship a program instead of making it our way of life. And when you make discipleship a program, then we're choosing who it is we prefer to disciple as we see fit instead of simply accepting the people God sends to you as he sees fit. And I'm telling you, if you will begin to view your entire life in the context of discipleship, the job you have, the neighborhood you live in, the people you hang around with, the ongoing interactions you have with the same people day in and day out, if you will begin to view all of that through the lens in the context of discipleship, or at least the possibility of discipleship, which again simply begins with the modeling of the life of Christ in front of them, as you walk that out in front of them. Look, once people realize it's not a gimmick, that that's actually who you really are, I'm telling you, they'll start to ask you questions about their life and about your life. They will. And in the beginning, they're testing the waters to see whether or not 
You're willing to accept them. And sure enough, the moment you resist engaging in those kinds of conversations with them, the moment you, you push people back, they're gone. They may still hang around or be around you physically, but you've lost your opportunity that God has given you to disciple them. And yet as soon as you accept them into your life, as soon as you make room in your life for the people God sends you, whether or not they're the people you would have chosen, then you will witness the making of a disciple right before your own eyes. And I guarantee you, your life will never be the same again. Bill Hull said, God has not promised to bless our good motives, dreams, and innovation. He's promised to bless his plan. That plan is that disciples make other disciples. Everything else is a sideshow. Let's keep reading, verses 3 through 5. David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the, David was in the stronghold. And then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold, Depart and go into the land of Judah. That's where David just came from. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Uh, so eventually David leaves the cave and travels to Moab because his family, his brother, uh, brothers and all his father's house have left their homes in Bethlehem to join David. Uh, look, not because they can't wait to spend time with David in a cave, but because out of Saul's insatiable hatred for David, David's entire family is now in danger of violent reprisals by Saul. So they leave their home to join him. And of course, David realizes after some time living in a cave in the wilderness that his aging parents aren't going to survive that long term. And so he leads the congregation of people, including his family, to Moab, the sworn, bitter enemies of Israel, the Moabites. First of all, because he knows it's an enemy stronghold that would, be, uh, would offer a lot of protection from Saul. And secondly, because David's great-grandmother is Ruth, a Moabite. So David has kin in Moab. And so he leads the people there, uh, which in and of itself had to have been a difficult journey, especially for David's parents. It's a descent of about 3,000 feet to the Dead Sea and then an ascent about a similar uh, distance an elevation back to the plateau of Moab. So it's a, a difficult journey to be sure. And yet, once they get to Mizpah in Moab, the fortified city of the king of Moab, Mizpah means uh, watchtower, they're accepted by the king who agrees to look after David's parents because as far as the king is concerned, any enemy of Saul is a friend of Moab. And it was working out great for everyone involved until... The prophet Gad comes along. He's one of the 400 who came to David in the wilderness. Uh, he ends up being with David throughout. And he tells David he must depart back to the wilderness of Judah because the Torah clearly prohibited the establishment of friendly treaties with Moabites. You could not enact anything official that would benefit your enemy. It is spelled out in Deuteronomy 23, 2 through 6. So, uh, you know, it was good while it lasted. But now it's time to go. And so David leads the people back to Judah to the forest of Hereth. Uh, a known hideout for fugitives west of the Dead Sea, which again is anything uh, but ideal when it comes to caring for all these people, his own parents in particular, right? The, the stronghold at Mizpah was safe. It was well supplied. It was well defended. Now David is right back in the wilderness trying to scratch out an existence while caring for hundreds of people and his own family. Yet that's the whole point. David could have easily said to the people who were with him, who were already 
not faithful to King Saul or Israel at this point, he could have easily left them in Moab. Right? That, that was his golden opportunity to finally be rid of all these people, to ditch them, uh, and, and then who were, by the way, most certainly pulling on him, right? And his ability to even care for himself. This was his opportunity to get rid of them. But he didn't get rid of them. He didn't abandon them because David understood that the Lord had sent him these people and they were therefore his responsibility to look after and to disciple. You see, David took responsibility for people no one else would, which is the next step in making a disciple because, look, it's, it's one thing to, to accept someone for who they are. It's good to listen to them and allow them access to your life. But it is another thing altogether to take responsibility for their well-being, spiritual and otherwise. And I'm sure there must have been moments where David thought, man, not, not only do I have myself to look after, but I have all these needy people to look after too. Especially after having to leave behind his life in the royal palace, a life leading Saul's armies, a life of privilege and plenty to now caring for the fringe of society while barely being able to take care of himself. Of course, who was he modeling his life after? Before he even realized it, Jesus, Jesus left his throne in heaven to come down here and care for the fringe of society, the outcasts, the people no one else was willing to take care of. And he expects no less from us because that is what it means to make a disciple. You take responsibility for the spiritual and sometimes physical welfare of that other person. And look, if you think that requires a ton of personal sacrifice, then you're starting to get the picture, because it will. We often think of the 12 disciples of Jesus as these poor, beleaguered fishermen just struggling to get by in their impoverished state who must have been happy to drop what they were doing and follow Jesus in the hopes of finding a better life. It's not true at all. Many of them were actually quite well-off, wealthy businessmen running lucrative family businesses. We see evidence of that all through the Gospels, in part uh, the fact that they had hired servants uh, working for them, right? Which, and then Jesus calls them to follow him. What do they do? These wealthy men drop their businesses, they drop their uh, materials, their resources, they abandon their income, their wealth, their security, their comfort, their way of life, and they follow Jesus. Just put yourself in their sandals for a minute. Think about your job, your business, your home, your lifestyle, your, your way of life. If Jesus called you to leave all of that behind in order to go and make disciples... Would you do it? By the way, it's not about being poor. Okay, he calls wealthy people to make disciples too. The point is, there's a personal cost associated with making disciples because you're not just telling people about Jesus. You're showing them who he is in the way you live your own life from one day to the next in the context of your relationship with them. It's a tremendous responsibility with eternal implications. But that's what David did. In fact, that's what Moses did. That's what Paul did. That's what Peter did. And that's what Jesus did. And before you say, well, that's not my calling. You're right. It's not your calling. It's his calling on your life. 
He has called every single one of us to go into the world and make disciples, which means if you're not actively making disciples of Jesus Christ in your life, then you are not answering his call on your life. I don't know how to be any more clear, and yet many Christians lose sight of that. We have this tendency to talk about my calling a lot. People are constantly asking the question, what is my calling? Or how, uh, I'm trying to discover my calling in life. Listen, it's not your calling that you need to discover. It's his. And it happens to be the exact same for every single one of us to go and make disciples, which is a profound responsibility. And so look, whatever you end up doing in life, if it doesn't involve making disciples, then without question, you have missed your calling. Because we're called to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And so what people are actually looking for, by the way, when they say they're trying to discover their calling, it's not the calling itself. It's the way that calling is carried out in their lives. Because you can be a preacher or a doctor, an electrician, a, a wildly successful business owner, a parent, a student, an artist. You can be one of many things and very effectively make disciples of Jesus Christ. You can. Because the calling is exactly the same. Now, how that calling is realized in your life, well, that's different for everyone. And so the moment Jesus calls you to follow him, the moment you become a disciple of Christ, that is the moment you have received your life's calling to go and make disciples. How you carry out that calling, well, that part is unique to you, and it may change throughout your life. And so if you're still searching to fulfill the call of Christ on your life because you're not exactly sure how he intends to do that for you, I'm going to tell you something this morning that will help you discover that specific path to his calling on your life. And it's summed up in two words, serving others. It's how David discipled other people and learned to be a king. It's how Moses learned to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. It's how Paul learned to plant churches. It's how Peter learned to lead Gentiles to Christ. And it's how Jesus chose to express himself as the king of all kings by serving other people. And guess what? That's the only way the call of Christ will ever be fulfilled in your life. Full stop. By serving others as you take responsibility for their welfare, their spiritual welfare and otherwise. Because the calling is not about you serving you. It's about you serving Jesus Christ and his church, his people. And look, that's what disciples of Christ are supposed to be known for. We should be famous for the way that we serve other people. And I'll just tell you. Uh, that requires a lot of maturity. I know because a lot of times I don't have a lot of that. It requires a lot of maturity and patience and commitment and courage and at times sacrifice because sometimes, look, sometimes the people you serve, they won't like the way you serve them. <laughs> sometimes they'll push back against discipleship. They'll push back against you just like you and I sometimes do with God. But that's what the making of a disciple looks like, just like, uh, look at Jesus and his disciples. How messy was that at times, right? But what did Jesus do? He just kept serving them. He kept discipling them until they got it, and then he sent them out to make more disciples. 
And so if you're serious about wanting to fulfill the call of Christ on your life and you have yet to discover specifically how you're supposed to do that, then go ahead and just take on the responsibility of serving God's people somehow, somewhere, some way. And I guarantee you, you will find your purpose and you will begin to make disciples and you will never want your life to go back to the way it was before ever again. Pastor and author Kevin DeYoung once said, the one indispensable requirement for producing godly mature Christians is godly mature Christians. <laughs> Let's keep reading. Verses 6 through 19. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? In other words, is David going to take care of you the way that I have? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, I, I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you've given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as, that, as at this day? And then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? It was probably the wrong thing to say. Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. This is the fallout from David's deception of Ahimelech in the last chapter, which we went over in depth last week. So we're not going to go over that part of the story again now, other than to say that David's behavior in the last chapter plays a significant role in the tragedy that follows here, which, by the way, David recognized and admits to as much as we'll see. And so Saul is holding court. He's conducting royal business outdoors in what was a, actually a time-honored tradition at a prominent location, a hilltop under a tamarisk tree, which was associated with the worship of Yahweh and with his spear in hand, all of which was meant to convey a sense of authority and dignity 
when conducting royal affairs in any location outside of the royal court. In other words, the king's pursuit of David is not a hobby for Saul. This isn't a side job in his spare time. Now, killing David has now become the official business of the government and priority number one for Saul. And as we see here, as he launches into an official complaint, an official accusation against his own staff, he says, Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. And although it may sound just like whining to us, what Saul's saying is actually true because the one thing that the king wants accomplished more than anything else in this world is the very thing his own staff is working against him on. They make no attempt to keep him informed about what's happening with David, and they refuse at points along the way, as we've just seen here, to even follow Saul's orders. And so as Saul accuses them of working against him, their silence speaks volumes. And that's where Doeg, the prisoner of war, the Edomite that we were introduced to last week, comes in because he has nothing to gain by protecting David. Potentially a lot to gain by satisfying Saul, the king. And so he inserts himself into the conversation, which would have normally never been his place. And he tells Saul part of what happened between David and the priest Ahimelech in the last chapter. He says, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, to the son of Atub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. I saw it myself, Saul. So he tells Saul that Ahimelech helped David by giving him food and a weapon. He conveniently leaves out the part where Ahimelech was literally trembling when David showed up, if you'll remember, and that he peppered David with questions about why he was there alone and the fact that David was lying the whole time about all of that and more. It would have been abundantly clear to anyone watching, as Doeg was that day, that Ahimelech was only trying to do what was right by God, by Saul, and by David. But of course, Doeg keeps all of that to himself. And remember, he was a prisoner of war, serving the priesthood against his own will. And so as far as Doeg is concerned, this is revenge. And so Saul calls for the priests from Nob, all of them. And he asks Ahimelech, why are you conspiring with David against me? To which Ahimelech replies with the truth. I've done nothing out of the ordinary, nothing out of character for the priesthood, nothing I shouldn't have done or haven't done before. Giving information that I had at the time, I did what was right. By the way, he says, I don't know anything about this trouble with David you're referring to. And all that was true. And yet there in the formal setting of the royal court, after Ahimelech presents what was a thoughtful and respectful and reasonable defense against Saul's accusations, Saul holds a trial in which he is the prosecutor, judge, and jury as he declares the entire priesthood led by Ahimelech guilty of a massive conspiracy against them, and he orders their immediate death. And of course, his own servants refuse to carry out the death sentence, so Doeg, the traitor, does it for them, and yet Saul doesn't stop there as he marches him right into Nob and kills every single man, woman, child, infant, and animal in the entire city. Save one man, the son of Ahimelech, who escapes and runs straight to David. Let's finish the story for today, verse 20 to the end of the chapter. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, 
named Abiathar escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I've occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. So one man, one of the sons of the priest, escapes the slaughter, rescues the ephod, by the way, the priestly garment, which we learn in chapter 23, and he runs to David's encampment in the forest of Hereth and tells David what happened. You want to talk about a heavy moment. As David is sitting there listening to an eyewitness and a son of the priest, that the entire priesthood, all of them, all their families, all of their homes, everything they owned, everything was just completely wiped out. All because Ahimelech gave David some bread and a sword. Bread and a sword that David deceived Ahimelech into giving him. Look, David could have easily sidestepped his part in all of this because Ahimelech was dead along with everyone else. There was no one left who was there to talk about what happened that day except Doeg and Abiathar has no access to him now. So he runs to David to tell David about the fact that everyone he loves and cares about has just been brutally murdered. David, who could have made any number of excuses for what just happened, instead he takes full responsibility for what just happened. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Abiathar, it's my fault. It's because of what I did that they're all dead. Wow, I mean, what a powerful moment of honesty and agony and forgiveness that must have been shared between these two men because in that moment, a friendship began that lasted throughout David's entire reign over Israel where each of these men were mutually discipled by the other as David was king and Abiathar served as priest. But listen, make no mistake about it. That relationship would have never happened had David not admitted his fault in the slaughter of Abiathar's family and friends. That's, that's the thing about David. Why, that guy could mess up as good as anybody. But every time it was pointed out to him, he owned it. He admitted his faults. He took responsibility for the consequences. And because of that honesty and willingness to admit his own faults, he was able to continue to have meaningful influence in so many people's lives. You see, the fact is, David admitted his faults in ways that no one else would. And it drew people to him. Not because he was perfect, but because he was honest about his imperfections. Boy, could we use a dose of this in the body of Christ today. Because listen, the fact that we're all broken people is not the problem. The problem is we don't want to admit that we're broken. We don't want to admit that sometimes we get it wrong. And sometimes when we get it wrong, we hurt other people in the process. And I'm just telling you, the fastest way to drive people away from you is to convince yourself that you're always right. And then you'll never disciple anyone. David could have said to Abiathar, well, that wasn't my fault. Your dad should have made sure old Doeg wasn't around first when he gave me the bread and sword. Or, you know, everybody knows you can't trust Saul. It's all his fault, and your father should have known better anyway. 
But David owned it instead. He owned up to the worst parts of it, and he didn't stop there because part of owning up to your faults is doing something about it. And so after admitting to his part in this tragedy, David immediately addresses the most vulnerable part of Abiathar's life in that very moment. Think about it. Abiathar just witnessed his parents and siblings and friends and home and belongings being destroyed by Saul, and now he's running for his life. The overwhelming vulnerability for Abiathar in that moment is fear for his own personal safety. So what does David do? Right after admitting his own responsibility for what happened, he says to Abiathar, stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. David not only accepts responsibility for his own mistakes, but he does something about it. He directly addresses the need that he created in Abiathar's life. And I'm telling you, if we as disciples of Christ will learn to admit our faults one to another, James 5.16, and then do something about it, namely seek forgiveness from one another and then offer to make it right by tangibly helping the people we've hurt, then we will have all the influence in this world we will ever need to make disciples. You know why? Because nobody does that. Nobody wants to take responsibility for themselves and their own behavior anymore, which we should expect from this world, but not from the church. There's enough pretense and arrogance in this world to go around. We don't need to add to it. And the irony is people think they will lose their influence with others by admitting their faults when actually the opposite is true. It's when we're honest about the fact that sometimes we're wrong. But sometimes we do things that hurt other people. And when you do something to make it right, listen, you will gain more influence in that person's life than you ever could by pretending you're never wrong. Because discipleship requires humility. And if there was ever a time in our lifetime when the world needed a humble, steady, listening church. Oh boy, it is now. Our culture has reached a boiling point. We're living in a moment in time that will be written about in history books. And so look, if it was up to you to script what will be written and remembered about the church at this critical juncture in history, what would you write? That we yelled the loudest that we got our point across, that we fought hard against the people we disagree with, that we got our man into office? Or would you write that the church rose up in the hour of this country's greatest need and with a steady hand and a humble heart and a quiet spirit, the church did something about it? Would you write that the church hunkered down and survived? Or would you write that the church stood up and spoke up for those who could not stand up or speak up for themselves? Would you write that the church made hollow promises to pray for people in their darkest hour? Or would you write that the church took responsibility for people in their darkest hour? 
What would you write about the church if it was up to you? Because you know what? Yeah, it is up to you. Making disciples is up to you. Fact is, it's your only job. And it's the only way this world will ever change. One disciple of Jesus Christ at a time. Let's pray.